0: Time for our regular segment with Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How are we doing?
1: Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be
0: here. Some really interesting topics on the docket for this week, including, I'm looking here, a quite substantial fine for illegal milk production.
1: (laughs) I I bet you didn't even know there was such a thing as
0: illegal milk production. Uh,
1: So... Uh, the, the background of this one uh, arises out of how we regulate uh, milk sales in British Columbia. Uh, and unlike most other agricultural products, if somebody's uh, growing carrots or uh, potatoes or whatever else it might be, you're free to grow them and sell them at uh, whatever price you could get for them. Uh, but not so with milk. Uh, in B.C. and indeed all across Canada, each province has a milk marketing board. Uh, that ultimately reports then to a federal agency that also deals with milk. And the milk marketing board sells and requires quotas uh, for farmers if they wish to uh, produce and sell milk. And indeed, you're only allowed to sell milk to the marketing board. If you dare sell milk either without enough quota uh, or you try to sell milk directly to somebody if you're a farmer, you may wind up in serious difficulty. Mm. And so this case uh, involved a farmer from the Lower Mainland, uh, and the Milk Marketing Board uh, decided to uh, engage in an almost unbelievable 19 days of surveillance of the farm uh, to see whether this farmer might be selling milk to anyone other than the Milk Marketing Board. And I should pause to say, uh, in the scope of things as a criminal lawyer, uh, it would take a pretty large and sophisticated drug operation before the police are spending 19 days surveilling anything. Uh, But that was indeed what the Milk Marketing Board did Mm. in this case. The Milk Marketing Board detected that the farmer was indeed uh, selling milk uh, to uh, an individual, not through the Milk Marketing Board. Uh, They trailed the person uh, and then they managed to get a, a search warrant ultimately. And they found milk jugs, and indeed, ultimately, the farmer uh, admitted uh, that he had, for seven years, been selling milk to this person. It sounds like they were taking it to a a temple of some kind and drinking it. And it was also, Hmm. to make matters worse, unpasteurized, which is actually (laughs) illegal as well. Oh, good old Canada. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So the office matter went to the milk marketing board. And the Milk Marketing Board imposed a fine of $195,184 on Ooh, the farmer, wow. uh, along with a $33,000 bill for their 19 days of surveillance, uh, and then uh, put conditions on him being allowed to continue to sell milk. Not surprisingly, given how much that fine was, uh, the farmer appealed. Uh, and indeed, uh, there is a whole appeal mechanism uh, built in, uh, to this process in British Columbia involving an appeal to an agency called the British Columbia Farm Indu- Industry Review Board, and so off the farmer went there. Two days after the farmer appealed, the milk bar- board, apparently out of spite, indicated they were applying to cancel all of his quota to put him out of the milk business completely. Wow! So that was the background. So off it went to the milk uh, to the appeal board, and. The appeal board, interestingly, there are a couple of legally interesting things about that. First of all, the appeal mechanism to that board involves what's called a hearing de novo, which is like a do-over. So it's different from like an appeal in a criminal case, where an appeal isn't an appeal saying, hey, what do you think of this new judge, right? What's happening generally in an appeal is a a judge or panel of judges is looking at what happened at first trial to see whether there was a mistake. Right, it's a review for mistakes, not let's do it all over again. Hmm. But that's not how it works in the world of milk. <laughs> and so, the BC Farm Industrial Review Board looked at all of this uh, and they concluded that it was unreasonable to cancel this man's license completely, putting him out of the milk business. That was done on the that application was made on the theory that he was quote. Ungovernable. <laughs> so, he was an ungovernable. Ungovernable? Farmer. It was impossible for them to govern him, even though he had no history of problems before, admitted that he had sold the milk and promised never to do it again. So that got overturned. Uh, but the, uh, what really stuck in the craw of the milk marketing board um, is that they reduced the fine to $3,000 plus that $33,000 bill for the surveillance program. Um, And so it's now being appealed again. And it went to the BC Supreme Court, and the Milk Marketing Board appealed that decision to reduce their fine down to the $3,000 amount. It was reduced to that amount on the theory that that's how much money the Milk Marketing Board lost out on. That's what they would have gotten from the sale of the milk uh, outside of their program. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the judge found that's not how that should have been calculated. And so the judge has sent that issue back to the D.C. Farm Industrial Review Board to look at, again, how much the fine should be. So it's not over. But the background of all of this, the really big picture people should think about, is this is why milk is so expensive. Yeah. Not just the surveillance program, but the fact that we have this uh, quota system. Uh, and so uh, people may have noticed the cost of milk has gone up over the past year and a half, along with a lot of other things, but milk more than many other things. Uh, in D.C., like the retail price of milk since 2022 has gone up approximately 15%. Hmm. And that's because of three price increases that the Milk Marketing Board and its uh, apparatus has awarded ultimately to farmers. And the price is set to ensure that even inefficient farmers can make a profit producing milk. It's a pretty good thing to have, right? And so what's happened is an entire market has grown up around the quota, the license, to have a cow to make milk. And so the quota is worth vastly more than the cow and the equipment and all the other things. It's the license for the cow. That's really where it's at these days. And those are bought and sold. And there's a whole market, and you can look it up uh, and see the monthly trade and milk quota by province to see how much these things are being bought and sold for. And it's a multi-million dollar market each month. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for consumers, what's really going on here is that farmers are not allowed to produce more milk. The price is fixed. It's fixed at a level to ensure even inefficient farmers make a profit doing this. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's why, in Canada, as opposed to the U.S., for example, we're paying—and it varies. We look at the time period. Something in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 percent more than what you would pay for milk uh, in the U.S. We have tariffs to stop, you know, illegal foreign milk from slipping in. We surveil farmers so they don't make any more, and there can be no uh, back door to milk. Uh, And then they set a price to make sure that everyone can make a profit. And so the real issue here is that for people that are buying milk, like people with kids, right? What we're yep. really doing is taxing those people yep. to subsidize milk farmers. Yep, right? absolutely. Yep. And if you, if you put it to people that way, you say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of all this milk marketing board apparatus, right? All the surveillance people and the uh, review boards and all that stuff. If you just said, look, what we're going to do here is we're going to impose a 30% tax on milk and give that to farmers, people would be outraged because that would be clear and transparent. Like if you went up to the cash register with your jug of milk, if they said, oh, yes, this is a special 30% milk tax you're going to pay single mom, we're sending that to the any, anyone who's producing milk, people would be outraged. It would likely last all of about 10 political minutes. But because this whole process is not transparent to anyone right, who's not in that business and because it is the only political issue that the milk farmers would care about, right, that's going to be the issue they would vote on federally and provincially. And only of minor concern to everyone else who's just paying too much for milk and probably not realizing it. That's why this continues to exist. right? It's a system that developed over the years in sort of a time of government intervention in all kinds of markets and you know worry about from the first world war you know things like that yeah but it's just turned into this octopus of a system uh, that is costing you more anytime you're buying milk, cheese, pizza, yogurt, anything that a milk product goes into um, and that's why you're paying more. it's not apparent to you, but that's what's going on uh, and to keep that cabal in place, you literally have this system of surveillance to make sure that farmers don't let anything uh, get out the gate that isn't going through that system. And by the way, when farmers produce too much, like the cows have a really good day, yep. they want to get some really green grass, yep, they make them dump the milk down the drain. They do. They destroy they it. Yep. They're so literally, they take a big hose and dump it down the drain. Yep. So this is in a time of grocery prices going through the roof. People needing meeting people getting rebates to buy food, we have a system in place that artificially increases the cost of milk, causes milk to go down the drain, uh, and uh, causes there to be people that are spending uh, days on end surveilling farmers uh, so that, uh, God forbid, they aren't uh, selling milk to somebody that isn't going through the system. So that's what's going on, and that's the uh, current state of affairs in terms of this particular farmer who's not done yet, Happily, he hasn't been banned from producing milk, uh, but he's still got a a long way to go legally and a a big bill to pay.
0: Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 will continue right after this break. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. A fascinating story that we just had about Canada's quota system for milk and what can happen when any producer runs afoul of it, including finding themselves under extended periods of surveillance that would seem out of place even among serious criminal matters potentially. Up next, though, Mike, I see Canadian Tire, Home Hardware, and another firm, And I see an alleged injury involving a pesticide. What's happening here?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting case. So it's a uh, man who's suing uh, these uh, retailers, uh, alleging that he, uh, and this part isn't alleged, the man has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He got cancer. So that Mm -hmm. part, I think, is clear. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his allegation is that that was caused by uh, his use of a product called Roundup, like a herbicide, right, to kill weeds. Mm Mm-hmm. And the man apparently had been using Roundup for some 30 years before being diagnosed with cancer. And the claim is an interesting one. Originally, the claim was framed in negligence, like alleging that those companies, and indeed Monsanto, I guess the manufacturer of it, were negligent, like careless in what they were doing. That Their carelessness caused him to contract cancer from Roundup. But that was changed some time ago. And the creative legal argument uh, that the man uh, is making, uh, is under the Sale of Goods Act. And the Sale of Goods Act in British Columbia has a general provision uh, that, uh, that provides that goods are, like new goods that you're purchasing, uh, are fit for the purpose for which they are intended, right? So, for example, if you uh, go in and buy a broom, you would you should be fit for the purpose of sweeping, right? And if the first time you tried to sweep something that you know, all the bristles fell out or something, you'd be able to go back into the store (laughs) or ultimately go to court to get your money back, right? That broom wasn't fit for the purpose of sweeping, right? So the creative argument being made was, hey, this stuff wasn't fit for its purpose. It gave me cancer. That's the argument, right? Hmm. To see how that plays out. But the particular decision that caught my eye it was a decision that just came out about this man's effort to get a jury trial. Um, you know, perhaps that might be a fact pattern that could be uh, that ordinary people might be sympathetic to, right? A man with cancer used this product, right? Yeah. As one might imagine, Canadian tire, home hardware, or quad city building materials weren't keen on the idea of having <laughs> a panel of ordinary people decide whether the roundup caused this man's cancer. No. And so they applied to a judge to what's called strike the jury notice. And the way that works is that one party or the other in a civil claim wants to have a jury. They can give notice to the other side, and they've got to pay a fee as well, um, to ask for a jury trial. Now, I should pause here to say there are a few interesting categories of cases where you cannot have a jury trial. One of those is if you're suing the government. (laughs) The government doesn't like that idea, and so you can't have one. For example, if you're suing the federal or provincial government, they don't want regular people deciding whether they're liable for something. But the man did serve it on uh, these companies. And so when the companies that don't want the jury trial uh, made an application to strike that so that only the judge would decide without a jury. And one of the uh, considerations there uh, is whether uh, the case deals with only an interpretation of a statutory provision, right? Like, what does the law mean? Mm-hmm. I guess with the idea that that's really a thing for a judge, why are we having a jury decide what the law is? And yeah. so the judge was sympathetic to that, right, saying, well, this is sort of a novel argument about uh, the Sale of Goods Act and how that applies to selling pesticide to somebody who gets cancer. But the other argument that was made here that you often see in these cases where one party does really doesn't want to have a jury trial is an argument about just how complicated the case would be and how just regular people couldn't possibly manage all of this paperwork and scientific evidence. Hmm. Um, and so the man's lawyer was arguing, no, no, this is quite straightforward. We can have this all done in, I think, six days. It's not that complicated. Whereas the stores were all arguing, of course, no, no, no. There'll be so much scientific evidence here and so much paperwork about 30 years of medical records and scientific evidence about the um Roundup, uh, no way that a jury could properly handle that. Uh, that's just too complicated, right? Uh, and boy, oh boy, this isn't going to be six days. It's going to go a month, and so that's what the judge was wrestling with. And I must say, I sort of smile as you uh, read the you know self-serving <laughs> uh, you know estimations of how complicated this thing's going to be. It does sound like there's a fair bit of puffery there, and I must say, I've got a I think a, a pretty high uh, expectations for what. People are going to be able to sort out on their own, bearing in mind, of course, those of us in the legal profession and ultimately judges have no particular scientific training uh, that you would expect, <laughs> as opposed to a random person that might show up to be a juror. Right? Mm. For you know, Furthermore, if you get a pool of jurors, maybe someone in there has got some scientific background. But nonetheless, that's what the judge was uh, wrestling with here. And ultimately, the judge on this application to get rid of the jury notice came down on the side of the stores uh, through a combination of, well, there's just a big uh, legal issue here. And then the judge accepted uh, the arguments made by the three stores alleged to have sold the roundup to the man over a 30-year period of time about just how complicated it was uh, and how hard it would be for a jury to have to look at 30 years of medical records and all these scientific records and opinions about whether a Roundup causes cancer or not. Um, so the outcome of this will be a, tri- a trial by judge alone, and we'll get a couple of interesting uh, decisions with reasons, of course, because that's what a judge has to provide, unlike a jury that just says, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, really, uh, about, first of all, whether the man can establish uh, that there was some whether the product uh, wasn't in compliance with the Sale of Goods Act in that he says it caused him to get cancer, right? That'd be like the broom who fell apart and you know, took your toe off or something. Mm. Um, uh, and then uh, we'll also uh, get a, a decision about uh, that, uh, that medical uh, issue, but whether this is something that indeed caused this man's cancer. So we'll need to look out for that. But it won't be a jury because it's apparently just too complicated for regular people to have to decide. Uh, And so I I imagine uh, that, at least on that level, uh, the uh, retailer defendants are breathing a sigh of relief that they're uh, not going to have a jury of ordinary people deciding. Uh, whether this man is made of his claim
0: or not. So if a Canadian jury did make a finding that a particular product did cause a man's cancer, I would suspect that the international manufacturers of that product would certainly have an interest in being involved in helping to shape that outcome, wouldn't they? Because wouldn't that bind other actions? What is it, res judicata, something along those lines? That's
1: really interesting and an insightful question, uh, particularly on the facts of this case. Because when they started the case, they were started with the theory of negligence, carelessness. Say hey, you were all careless, and so will be something that caused me to get cancer. Should have been more careful. Hmm. Uh, and they named the manufacturer as well. I mean, they were careless in selling the stuff that he alleged caused cancer. But because they're focusing on the Sale of Goods Act, right? So rather than having to prove hey, you were careless, you should have done more, you know, you have some duty to determine whether this causes cancer, that would be an interesting legal argument, maybe mm-hmm. a challenging one to get over, right? What duty does Canadian Tire have to figure out whether some product is going to cause cancer, right? You might have a judge say, well, look, even if it did, how is Canadian Tire supposed to know that, yeah. <laughs> right? Even if we now determine that it's cancer-causing. And so by focusing on the sale of goods, they're going to try to avoid that legal challenge. But it also means they dropped the case against Monsanto hmm. because they're just going to focus on, hey, did this cause it? Was that unfit for its intended purpose? And so Monsanto is no longer part of the litigation. It's just the stores. And so that's an interesting fact pattern as well. Uh, and so one thing might be a uh, sort of a, some precedent if you get that now because there'll be a reasoned decision from the judge. Um, so it will be an interesting one to watch going forward. It's proceeding. Um, and so the that uh, novel legal argument will also be one to watch, right? That's a bit of legal creativity there that might avoid one of the uh, speed bumps uh, in trying to make out a claim like that.
0: We've got two minutes and 15 seconds left and one other matter on the agenda. Do you think we can do it? Sure. Uh, So the
1: final case is a a case involving a man who had been a teacher in Ontario uh, who moved to British Columbia. Uh, The man applied to become a teacher here uh, and things were proceeding along just fine uh, until the uh, BC uh, regulator for teachers became concerned that he might not speak English fluently. Uh, This despite the fact that he'd got a I think a couple a master's degree and a couple of other degrees. The man was originally from Bangladesh. He did he immigrated to Canada, but he'd been in Canada and teaching back in Ontario for several years. So they said, We want you to do an English test before we certify you to teach here. The man said, I'm not doing that, and that's discriminatory. So we refused the test. So they refused the license. The man appealed that made a human rights tribunal complaint alleging that he was being discriminated against based on his racial origin. Um, that failed. They concluded that there was just no evidence that that's why they were concerned about his ability to speak English. It was their communication with him that caused them to be concerned about his ability to communicate in English. The man didn't like that, uh, and so he appealed it uh, by way of a judicial review, uh, which also was unsuccessful. He then appealed it a second time, claiming that the judge that rejected it must have been racially biased. That didn't fly either. That was the most recent decision from the Court of Appeal. But what I did notice reading the decision, at the end of the day, the man was self-represented through this entire process, which one would imagine after years of litigation and literally days of hearings <laughs> at each of these levels, perhaps there's some evidence there about his capacity to uh, communicate in English, because he seems to have been able to conduct a human rights hearing, a judicial review, and an appeal to the Court of Appeal. So. Well, he hasn't succeeded. Perhaps that will be some evidence now about his capacity to communicate in English, uh, and he can uh, try again with his application uh, to be permitted to teach in B.C., because, of course, we can uh, use some teachers with master's degrees that are prepared to teach here. So that's the uh, case of the uh, uh, language testing for the man moving from Ontario.
0: During the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Always a pleasure, Michael. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care.